Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The cost of renting in Canada hit another record high last month. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. My advice to tenants is don't move. It's much more beneficial for a developer to build condos than it is to build rental. Our question, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? If the rent market is the way it is, I go somewhere else. I'm 58 years of age. I want to stand on my own two feet. If that means moving, I have to do that. As a small landlord, in my case, with the financial hits I've had to take, it hasn't penciled out very well. Landlords will be asking for credit checks. They'll be asking for references. They'll be asking for proof of employment. And they're very, very strict on what you can and can't do. There is a rent crisis in this country, a phrase we've heard so often it might almost seem like a cliché unless you're the person struggling to find an affordable apartment or are spending so much on rent, it's putting the squeeze on the rest of your budget. Over the next 90 minutes, you'll hear stories from across the country about Canadians coping with scarce supply and soaring rents. Our question, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? In the last half hour, we'll have our Ask Me Anything with Dr. Fatima Kakar. In the lead-up to the Thanksgiving weekend, she'll have advice on COVID, RSV, and your kids. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from October 1st, 2023. Our first guest today has struggled to find an apartment despite making what most people would consider a pretty good wage. Carl Eaton is a renter and he joins us now from Burnaby, British Columbia, just outside Vancouver. Hi, Carl. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So you're in a place now, but how long were you looking for an apartment before you finally found your current place? Well, I've been uh, looking for about two years, but a year avidly looking. And what was that like? What was the struggle? Uh, Every single month, rent went up by 100, 200, and it just continued and continued. And what was out there was, I'm a single father, so I've got... uh, my kid that lives with me, so I was always looking for a two-bedroom, and what was out there, it was ridiculous. You have been pretty uh, open about your situation, including talking numbers, and, and I think it's okay to ask you this. Uh, to put this in perspective for us, here's here's somebody who, who spent months and months and months looking for a place, couldn't find it in the Vancouver area. Um, how much do you make? Well, 38 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. so 72400 a year, roughly. And that wasn't enough for the longest while. So you were living in in a couple of rooms in in a friend's house, so much so that that friend kind of held on to his place longer than he wanted to, I guess another rental, because he didn't want to put you out in the street. And how did you eventually find the place you're in now? Uh, well, I reached out to David Eby's office. That's and, the premier, uh, yeah. Yep. And they were not really able to help me out, but there was a lovely lady there named Middle Gorman. And she suggested trying uh, an app called the Next Door app and put your, you know, put it out there, tell them your story. And I did, which got me in touch with Gloria Makarenko. And she wanted to interview me, so I ended up doing an interview with her. 
And during this time, I've been trying to apply for co-ops and different places and such. And I, I guess people started seeing it. And um, then I did a CKNW spot for it. And finally, one of the co-ops that I applied to, they we already interviewed there, but they hadn't said yes to us. And I guess after seeing the interview and hearing about it, they decided to take a chance on us. Wow. So uh, David Eby had been the housing minister, then the premier. So you're in touch with his office, Gloria Makarenko, my colleague here who hosts from CBC Vancouver, an afternoon radio show on the coast. And then CKNW is another radio station in Vancouver. So you were going to all the big guns there to get your story out. And eventually you ended up finding a place. Again, you've been very open about uh, about money parts of it. So you're making just over $70,000 a year. You had to move away from Vancouver to the suburb of Burnaby. And and can I ask how much are you spending now on rent? It's two thousand dollars a month, so it's still pretty high. But my son uh, has decided that he's not going to go right back to school. He's done an apprenticeship program uh, for plumbing, and he's going to work towards getting his red seal so he can work and try to put money towards rent because he realizes how tough it is here. Because he was helping in the search, and it, it was just there was nothing. Yeah, ridiculous. So, so this takes a toll in all kinds of ways. The fact that you were in temporary housing with your friend for, I think, almost two years, I, I, I believe. Um, and then that you have an adult son who you need to turn to for help, though, I mean, he also is you know, living with you. Um, but but I guess he had to kind of change his, his, his schooling plans in order to get a job to make work to help you out. And, and that's been tough on you. That's been pretty stressful. And you got to wonder why, you know. I'm trying to provide for my my son as best as I can, but you know, I, a second side hustle. I don't know what that is. I don't know. Do I get an you know a, an OnlyFans page? <laughs> Joking, but you know, like there's only so much you can do because my job is a, it's a full time job. Plus, I have to be on call occasionally and emergency call outs. I work on the Pure Fiber Network and I'm in the cable repair side of things. So it doesn't you can't just suddenly have a second job or a third job. You know, when your job is big enough as is. And again, I mean, a job that in a lot of places people would assume is enough to, to be able to get a place uh, that, that is within your budget, but it wasn't easy to get, and you ended up having to move out of Vancouver. And I just wonder, with your, your rent being so high, what impact does it have on the rest of your financial plans? Well, let's put it this way. I've had to stop my RSPs. I have to rely strictly on my uh, pension via the TWU um, union. And uh, yeah, all savings, probably no more vacations for a while. Wow. Nothing, I don't know what else there is to do about that sort of stuff. You know, I can only get paid so much. It's not like we can, I can beg my employer for a raise. So you have stable, safe, secure housing now. Um, what What's kind of next for you, do you think, in terms of housing or, or finances? Well, it's we're we're safe and stable here, so that's that's a, that's a good thing. And you know, the only way I can get sort of kicked out here is if I break the rules or don't pay my rent. So going forward, I'm going to focus on making life easier for my son. Hopefully, we can help him. I don't know, save towards something in the future and have a have a better chance than I've been allotted here. Although you know, I can't say that I've had a, a bad life because Vancouver's been great. But it's only been since COVID that everything has just shot through the roof and. It's so out of whack now, and it's it's not just greed, but it's insurance or inflation rates. It's everything all tied together. And what is the answer? That's a real tough question because, you know, there's no rental housing being built, and and why would you if you, you know if if you didn't have to? Most people wouldn't. 
Well, it's really good that you're willing to speak so openly about your story, including attaching uh, numbers to it as well, because it, it tells the story very well. And, and I hope we hear other stories like this uh, over the course of the next 90 minutes. Carl, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Carl Eaton is a renter in Burnaby, British Columbia, just outside of Vancouver. If, if you have a story about being a renter or being a landlord, you can certainly give us a call right now. Our question, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? Our number is one 888 You could also text us if you have a comment, 226 758 8924. So that text number, 226-758-8924. Let's go to the phone lines. Angus McDonald is in Hope, British Columbia. What, about two hours, I guess, uh, east of here in Vancouver. Hi, Angus. Oh, hi, Ian. How are you today? I'm well. So so tell us about your struggles in terms of getting affordable rental. Well, ours ours isn't really much different than your last caller. Um, we, my wife and I, though, are seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 62 and I'm severely disabled, which means I can't work anymore. Period. Um, my my income is limited to Canada Pension Disability and the provincial disability allowance. My wife can only work part time, so she only pulls down um, maybe 40 hours every two weeks. So our total monthly income comes in at around $4,000. Now, up until COVID, everything was great. We could meet our monthly obligations without a problem. COVID strikes, the 2020, 2021 go by. 2022, we start noticing things getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Beginning of this year, everything just goes into the toilet. Um, Now, we... We're in kind of a unique situation. We're in an apartment that we don't have to move out of, other than the fact that I can no longer navigate our stairs. Mm. So we need to get a ground-level apartment. Uh, Normally, it wouldn't be a problem. We've lived in this town for 30 years, and we've lived in several different units within the community. And uh, paying for rent has never been an issue. Until now, we have to decide whether we're going to eat or continue living in our apartment. Wow. And that's really what it comes down to, because we simply don't have enough money coming into the into the house. Hmm. And, we you know, you go, go ahead. We don't know. Sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Ian. Well, I was just going to say, we should point out for people outside of BC um, a little bit about hope, you know, because a, a lot of people, when they think about the rental crisis, think about the big cities, Vancouver, Toronto, you know, Montreal, et cetera. Um, hope is, is this beautiful little town, maybe officially a city, but pretty small community um, that some people maybe drive by or drop into when they're driving from Vancouver uh, eastward. It's interesting to hear that this rental squeeze is being felt in hope as well. So Angus, you're talking about how you have to make decisions about rent or, or, or food. I mean, is that literally the situation you're in? Yeah, that, quite literally. Um, I, uh, my wife and I, when we go shopping, um, we go maybe once every two weeks. Um, we are currently surviving on about $200 worth of food mm. every two weeks. Um, and it really does come down to that. We have to make uh, conscientious choices about what food we buy just so we make sure we have enough money to pay our rent and other uh, other incidentals. Now, I'm uh, being severely disabled. I have to make uh, a couple of trips a month down the valley to see various doctors. Hmm. And that can be quite costly with the cost of gas, as yeah. we all know. Uh, insurance on the car. Um, then you've got 
uh, it's all the other incidentals that you got. We don't have the luxury of going out anywhere or ordering in takeout. Uh, that's that's something that's gone out the window. And we really find ourselves in a scary position because I can't be I, I can't be stuck in my apartment uh, mm-hmm. every day all day. I need to be able to get outside. I mean everybody does. But uh, we're literally in a position where if I can't get outside, well, I'm stuck here. Um, and I don't know how long I'm going to be able to navigate the stairs. Mm-hmm. And I know we're not, I know as seniors, it's not a unique situation for us. So I, I don't want to come off sounding like this is something we're stuck in and no one else is, because we know other seniors in very similar situations. Their rent has gone up so high, they can't afford to live where they are, but they can't afford to move either. Yeah. Listen, Angus, yeah. no apology needed. No one no one will think, I hope, for a moment that uh, you're suggesting your situation is unique. It's it's the very fact that I'm sure it's resonating with people across the country that it's important for you and others to, to give us a call. I'm sorry to hear your situation, but I do appreciate the fact that you're willing to share it. Thank you, Angus. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you for your time. I know you have other callers. Yeah, absolutely. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. We are live on CBC News Network, CBC Radio, and the CBC Listen app. And our question this week, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? Or perhaps you're a landlord and you can give us some insight about the rental crisis from your perspective. So we, we heard two very eloquent and... Uh, you know, vivid stories about the rental crisis from from Carl and then uh, a couple of minutes ago or just moments ago from a caller in Hope, British Columbia. And so let's bring in an expert who's going to be with us for the first portion of the show. Brian Doucette is an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo. And uh, Brian, this is something that uh, you're very familiar with. And I just wonder, first of all, I can ask you, listening to those two calls, uh, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is that we're now seeing experiences of people like your first caller, uh, who a few years ago never would have dreamed they'd be victims of a housing crisis. So this is something that has extended beyond just people who are on very low incomes. It is growing, and as as we all know, it's a much larger segment of the population. And you know, most renters, I think, are dealing with some sort of affordability issues or the threat of an affordability issue if they if they have to leave. Um, your last caller's uh, experiences um, in hope, I mean, we see this here in Ontario as well, that it's not just a big city phenomenon. It's not just something that happens in the largest metropolitan areas. It happens in small communities and rural communities. And when you start to hear these anecdotes, right, you hear these individual stories, these, um, you know, really heart-wrenching experiences, and then you hear more and more of them. It doesn't take that long before you start to hear and see patterns and trends that are widespread across the country. And so tell us a little bit about those patterns and trends. Well, we see that most renters are under a great deal of pressure. They're fine, for many renters, they're fine if they stay where they are because many renters have some degree of rent control. In Ontario, for example, where I live, uh, tenants, sitting tenants in units that were first occupied after November, 2018, enjoy rent control, which means that there's a limited amount of annual rent increases per year. However, when a unit becomes vacant, so if a tenant has to move or if a landlord decides that they want to try and raise the rent by getting a new tenant in, 
once that unit becomes vacant, there's no rent control on it. So a landlord can rent that unit out for whatever they want. So this traps renters in a way, because if they move, they're moving to somewhere that probably isn't rent control. It erodes the supply of housing that is affordable, particularly to people on low and moderate incomes. And it creates this incentive that land, many landlords will try to, um, to sort of use to force tenants out in order to raise the rents beyond what they could if, it, if there was a sitting tenant there. So all the stories of rent evictions happening uh, largely happen because of this, this loophole. When a unit becomes vacant, there's no more rent control on it. We're listening to Brian Doucette, the Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo, and he'll be with us throughout the first 90 minutes of the program today to give us his insights into the rental market. Our question today, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? Call us at one 888 or log on to Brian, we heard from the first two guests, their experience is that COVID really powered an increase in what they were seeing for uh, rents in Vancouver and Hope, British Columbia. Um, you study these things. Is, did, did the pandemic and, and people being at home and maybe people, you know, working from home and moving away, did, was that a big turning point in rents in this country? It was in some ways. I mean, if you speak to, and some of the research that, that we've done here in, in Ontario, you know, you speak to people who are on low and very low incomes and they'll tell you that we're We've been in a housing crisis for decades, right? We've been in a housing crisis since uh, the government got rid of that unit-based rent control, vacancy control, right? And that set the stage for a lot of what we're seeing here. So like the pandemic has done in so many other aspects of our lives, it has accelerated trends that were already in place. And so now the you know rent increases have gone through the roof and the number of people, the share of tenants, percentage of tenants who are now dealing with these affordability issues is growing and growing, but they were certainly there before, especially for low and very low income tenants. The federal government recently announced a GST rebate for developers for building rental apartments. What do you think the impact of that will be? It'll have some impact. Um, It'll have a, a nominal impact. So it's not nothing. It's a good thing to do. It's a good initiative and a good step to say, look, we need to prioritize building rental. You know, we talk so much about how much supply we need. We talk about the numbers, but we don't really ask what kind of supply, for whom, where, and, you know, what should we build first? And so trying to shift the balance, shift the pendulum a little bit to promote purpose-built rental is a good thing. The biggest difference, the biggest change is going to come when we bring back some stronger rent control and, and tenant protections. Those are provincial responsibilities, but the federal government in the past in the 1970s, when we were dealing with very high inflation, strongly urged, they they couldn't compel provinces, but strongly urged provinces to bring in rent control. And they did to help deal with inflation. So a similar message from the uh, federal government would be really helpful, as well as thinking about, you know, what kind of housing are we building? We need to build non-market housing, uh, social housing, co-op housing, not just, you know, removing GST. It's a great first start, but there's a lot more work to be done. Well, so much to follow up on there, um, and we will do that uh, over the course of the program, Brian. Thank you very much, Brian Doucette, an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo, and he will be staying with us. Uh, Coming up, we'll hear from a landlord in Vancouver, actually just in, in a few minutes, who says 
it isn't worth it anymore for her. Rising interest rates and inflation have put the squeeze on property owners as well. So we'll hear more about that. Uh, in the meantime, we would love to hear from you, whether you're a renter or a landlord. Our question today, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? Our phone number is one 416 Our text number is 226-758-8924. Richard Tan is in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Hi, Richard. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, what's your rental situation? How tough has it been for you? Well, it, it, it was tough uh, trying to locate a house to rent here mm-hmm. in Niagara Falls. Uh, it, it was more like a uh, competition uh, because you'd go, you'd be out searching for a rental. You'd look in the, you'd look at all the ads that were out there, and then you would go to the uh, house to look at it, and then all of a sudden you would you would see about fifty people, uh, all trying to rent the same place at the same time. Wow! And you know, it's it, it to me, I found that astonishing. And then they wanted credit checks and uh, your firstborn. It seemed like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it to me. That was my first time going out looking for a house to rent in years. Yeah. So did did you have a, a long term rental before that, or did you own? You uh, no, I had a, I had a deal with uh, say my brother mm-hmm. uh, who had bought a house. Okay, who rented it out to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then he he uh, in turn wanted to sell that house and basically came out and told me that uh, we would have to move. And, you know, we would have to find a place to uh, live on or, you know, to live. So going out searching, you know, like I said, it took months uh, to to basically secure the house that we're in now. But with me being now retired, I retired in 2020 uh, from a full-time job. Okay. Mm -hmm. My wife still works full-time. And I receive, uh, you know, a Canada pension and also a federal pension. Mm-hmm. Now, once I had turned 66, I didn't realize that they were going to take my federal pension and cut that in half and give me what they call the supplement mm-hmm. every month. So basically, you know, our savings has basically dwindled since that happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of a sudden I have this nice savings account and then all of a sudden, uh, oh, wow, now we get really have to budget on what we're doing. Yep. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, the land, the landlord, she puts the rent up on the house and and trying to, you know, also, you know, if you want to secure any type of uh, uh, what what they call uh, regional type housing, okay, mm-hmm. or uh, or rent to rent to suit income yeah. type housing, okay, there's a waiting list of ten years before you can even uh, get a place. I mean, that is. That to me, that is ridiculous. So, so Richard, you were saying when you first started looking around four years ago at housing, there'd be lots of people. I think you said fifty people. You know, you were competing with. How did you end up winning, quote unquote, the place you you got? What did it take for you to to beat out the other, whether it was nineteen well, or twenty nine or forty nine other people? Well, okay. The other what what beat beat them out? Okay, was uh, uh, the way. Uh, we came in and presented ourselves to to the real estate agent, okay, who mm-hmm. presented us to the landlord, okay. Like myself, I'm I'm a uh, do-it-yourselfer. I can uh, do you know a lot of home repairs myself on uh, which I have done around the house here, mm-hmm. and I don't ask anything 
you know, for compensation except for the materials yep. that uh, I purchased for the, uh, you know, for the renovations. And uh, she thought that was great because, you know, I'm treating it like it's her, like it was her house. Yep. You know, well, and I think that's what won uh, won us over on getting this this place here. Yeah, very interesting that it does take. You know, it's, I, I talked to somebody actually, a, a CBC radio host who mentioned on the air that that he at one point um, had offered a landlord four months rent up front just to try to get a little extra edge on the other people. In your case, Richard, you can offer to fix things. That would not work for me. I do not have those skills. So I would just have to smile and try to be charming. But Richard, yeah, thank you. Because, because, yeah. yeah, because I have all those, I have all the uh, power tools and, yep. and, you know, I don't, uh, everything that I learned, I learned from, believe it or not, Ian, is from my dad. My dad passed everything on. And all those skills are pa- uh, were passed on from him. That's fantastic. My dad is listening to this program right now. He has all those skills, and sadly, I was not capable of learning any from him. But uh, I'm glad that you were able to to pass to continue the legacy in your family, being able to fix things. And it sounds like it really helped you out a lot, Richard. Thank you very much. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and the CBC Listen app. And we're talking about the rental crisis in this country. And as I mentioned. Uh, uh, it's not just renters we want to hear for us, uh, hear from. So let's turn now to to a landlord to get her perspective. Cheryl Yeager rents out two units in her house. One is a basement suite, the other a bachelor apartment. Uh, she says, though, that rental income uh, is a bit more complicated than you might think, that existing laws in British Columbia can cause tricky situations between landlords and tenants. We've reached her in Vancouver. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. Uh, homeowners renting out basement suites, for example, might seem like a win-win situation. It creates rental spaces, which are sorely needed, and it allows the owner to get some extra income. But but based on your experience, what advice would you have for a, a homeowner who's thinking about renting out a basement? Well, I, I mean, personally, we had to have tenants in order to purchase this house. So if you are looking in the market and you're thinking, oh, you know, everything that's out there is a fixer-upper and I don't have the money to do a fixer-upper, if you're willing to take on a tenant, then you can get into a a better housing situation for yourself. And the majority of the tenants that I've had have been very good and I've had good relationships with the majority of my tenants. But I did have a very unfortunate situation with a tenant that has cost us $35,000 in legal fees. And as a result, that's why I rent my studio apartment as a furnished short-term rental, because I don't want to be exposed to long-term tenant rentals anymore. So I have one of each. And um, when you have a short-term rental like that, it allows you to stay current with the pricing in the market because you have a lot of turnover. So you can stay, stay closer to market value, which is quite important as a landlord because our expenses are just going up and up and up and up. So let's talk about that $35,000 for a moment. I'm sure some people are kind of surprised to hear that number. Yeah. Um, so, you know, your tenant was doing something that he had agreed he wouldn't do in in the unit in terms of uh, uh, smoking or vaping. Um, and so uh, you tried to get him to either adhere to the contract or, or get out. How do you end up accruing a $35,000 legal bill? Well, we... we um We tried to have the complaint dismissed through the Human Rights Tribunal. We could not get it dismissed. Then we entered into uh, mediation. So we hired a lawyer when we started the mediation. We couldn't come to a resolution. And that meant we had to go to a five-day hearing. And legal fees are very expensive when you have basically court time. And 
so the the end in the end the bill was $35,000 and we're still waiting for a decision from the tribunal which is just incredibly behind so that matter happened in 2020 and we're still waiting for a decision and we probably won't get it until next year and is that tenant still in your unit no he moved out right um yeah so you wanted this need this rental income uh, to help you afford your mortgage uh, so how how is it working for you from a financial standpoint well, financially, we wouldn't be able to have this house without the mortgage, um, without the rental income. But mm-hmm. we are still paying over fifty percent of our income towards the house. So, you know, my my mortgage payments because we're variable, they've doubled, and we pay every two weeks. So, twice a year, twice a year, our mortgage payment is twelve thousand dollars. So the, you know, the the rental income that we're getting, definitely, we couldn't live here without it. But we're also paying tax on it. And it's not, you know, it's not the gravy train that landlords are portrayed to be having. I'm not, I'm not getting rich off this. And um, I'm providing housing and it's a service. And I think if the government truly wanted to do something about the housing crisis, they would be more supportive of landlords in, like myself who provide a really the, a lot of housing in British Columbia and in Vancouver is private accommodation like this and mm-hmm. i'm in a couple of different facebook groups and people and just people that i know and the main reason people don't want to be a landlord is because of the exposure if you have a bad tenant and if the government would you know carrot people to incentivize people to be landlords there was a recent study and it said 20 percent of people who own a home have a suite they could rent but they choose not to and another 15 percent had space that they could convert to a suite, but they mm-hmm. choose not to. So imagine if we could open up that housing, what that would do for the housing crisis. I mean, it would yeah. provide so much housing and it would be so simple and you're not waiting for new construction. And, yeah. and But the government is on the side of the tenants and not all landlords are bad. Yeah, it, it's a balance though, right? Because uh, housing is so important that there have to be protections for tenants as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be protections for tenants, but currently there are no, basically no protections for landlords. And nobody wants to get into the business of being a landlord because you're so exposed. I mean, I didn't want a tenant smoking in my house because I'm an asthmatic. I'm protecting my own health. And I, And it was right at the start of the COVID crisis. And the government said, you can't evict anybody for anything. So that was the situation we were stuck in. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. Really important to hear all the voices on this program, including the voices of people like yours who have two suites in your home. Cheryl, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Cheryl Yeager is a Vancouver homeowner, and she joined us today from the city of Vancouver. Lots of time still to call in, whether you're a tenant or a landlord, or you're stuck in a bad situation right now that's pushed further because of the the tough rental crisis that we're facing. Our question, how far have you gone to rent an apartment? Call us at 1-888-416-8333 or text us at 226-758-8924. You also hear me talking about Aircheck, cbc.ca slash Aircheck. And Caroline Lum went to Aircheck to reach us and we called her back. Caroline, how are you? I'm doing well, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. So how far did you have to go to find a place to rent? First of all, I just want to start off with a, ba- with a little bit of background for myself. Sure. We lost our house in 2017 due to a bad business decision. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's our fault, and we, talk- we take total responsibility for it. 
we re- we ended up doing a rental in an area outside in Ottawa that was considered low income because it was what we could afford. And that was all great until COVID hit. So when COVID hit, we were motoring along, motoring along. And then in 2021, we were on July 1st, exactly at 9 p.m., we were uh, sent a letter by a lawyer. And it said to us that we were being renovicted. And the new price was 200 a month. So we we decided, okay, so what was all this about and everything else? So, so let me just jump in and say the, the new price was an increase of $200 a month? Twenty, you No, know, it was going up from sixteen forty nine mm-hmm. to twenty two hundred. Okay, twenty two hundred a month, right? Okay. So we were we were sitting we were sitting there. My husband and I were sitting there, and we were going, "What is this?" We had never heard of renoviction. We had never we we didn't even know that the property was for sale, mm-hmm. and we were clueless, clueless. We went online. We tried to find documentation on it and what our legal repercussions were, and there was nothing, nothing. So we contacted the lawyer, we contacted the person who had bought the property, and they had said that if we wanted to slip them an extra 700 and some dollars a month, they would let us stay under the table. Hmm. And I'm going, what is this? And I was shocked. And I was dumbfounded. So I tried to go on to the websites and I tried to go on to everything that Ontario had about rent control and what was going on and how we could actually fight this and actually how we could stay in this home that we were renting for three years and there was nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing available to us. So we found a place in, in a place called Stittsville, mm-hmm. which is a suburb of Ottawa. Anybody that knows Ottawa knows that it's a government town. And they don't think that it happens in Ottawa because it is a government town. Well, we were we found a place in Stittsville, and it was not ideal, but it's what we could afford. So we lived, we moved in, and then a year later, we're hit with an N two exemption. Most people do not know what an N two exemption is. Yeah, I certainly don't. So what's the what's the short okay. explanation? Okay. So this is where rent control is not a part of your rent. They do not have to adhere to rent control. Because of the costs of the building costs and because of COVID and because of all the restrictions that landlords have had in the last two years, they can jack up the price to whatever they feel fit. And how much did your rent increase based on the my, exemption? My, my, in, my rent increased $189. It mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a lot of money, but the problem was is that they can do this and they feel sick. They can do it twice a year. They can do it three times a year. They can do whatever they choose to, as they say fit, as they said. Caroline, it's, it's, there's so many difficult elements to your story, the losing your home, the the initial place that you rented and, and how much more the rent was going to be. Um, I wonder in this case, if, if the $189, do, do you think, I mean, might that reflect 
just the increase, legitimately the increased costs that the homeowner is facing? No, because all my neighbors are facing $350. Mm -hmm. Okay, I live in a place where there's about 85 units, and it's not just, I am subjected to a $189 increase. That's fine. But the fact that they can raise it whenever they choose to, Mm -hmm. as they stated in an email, makes me very nervous. Yeah. And no one should have to be nervous about whether they can keep their, you know, their the, the place they're living in. Um, so, so what do you think is going to happen with you over the next couple of years? We don't know. We're seniors, okay? We're in our 60s. Mm-hmm. We both have to work full-time because we don't have a pension. And we don't have any retirement savings plan. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be working till we're 85. And the fact that our rent goes up whenever they want to is... Is a problem with us. Yeah. Sure is. Caroline. Now, uh, now yes, we, yes. Unfortunately, we have been looking for two years at affordable accommodation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not talking about 1600 I'm not talking about 1700 We're looking at 22 26 2800 a month. Mm. Okay. But where does that leave me for retirement? Like I said, we both work full time. We both, yes. We're not, on, we're not like a lot of people in Canada where they can't afford the rent. Mm-hmm. But where does that leave me for retirement? Because I don't have a retirement savings plan. Yeah. The company I work for, we don't have that. Such a tough So it's squeeze. not an option for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear this, Caroline, but again, important to hear these stories. Thank you very much for, for calling in. I hope that uh, I hope things do work out over the next couple of years. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We have so many people on the line here, but I do want to quickly check back in with Brian Doucette, an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo. And Brian, just specifically on, on that story, we there's so many elements to it. But first of all, the the proposed rent increase in the house that she was renting at first and then the offer of, I think she said, $700 a month under the table in cash, presumably, uh, for the landlord to keep her place. And then the problem she's having with a place now in terms of prices and, and, uh, and the increase, just your reaction to that story. Yeah. I mean, we hear stories like this, like this all the time in our research and it really underscores the, the previous caller who was the landlord who said, you know, there's no protection for landlords. And I think if you look objectively at the system, you find that pretty much everything is designed to protect landlords at the expense of tenants. And, the stories of rent evictions, which is basically when tenants are evicted in order to renovate their units. Um, this happens in community after community across the country. Very rarely when this renovation work takes place, is it the kind of renovation where the tenant actually has to leave? In most cases, this is used as a way of getting tenants out. And again, these tenants will be having some degree of rent control. But once they leave and those units are vacant, there's no more rent control on the unit. And so the landlords can take advantage of a huge gap in what long-term, often low-income sitting tenants are paying and what the unit could be rented for uh, at today's market. And so this erodes the supply of housing that is affordable to people like your previous caller. So when you hear about people struggling to find places to live, Part of it is the supply we need to build as our population grows, but part of it is this erosion 
of housing in some cities like Hamilton, it's about, you know, if you go for the very low end, so to $750 a month, there's something like 20 or 25 units lost for every new unit built, new supply added at that price, right? And these are not units that are disappearing and, and getting demolished most of the time. They are still there. It's just the tenants have left, often through renovations, right? Through these somewhat dubious practices that your previous caller alluded to. And then those, those rental prices jump and that supply of actually affordable housing is gone. Okay, next time we check in, Brian, I want to ask you some more about renovations and whether there are any practical solutions to uh, when when the renovation is maybe a little bit dodgy or used as a justification just to, to jump up rent. So we will come back to right. you in just a moment, but I do want to get back to the phone lines. Brian Doucette, a professor in uh, Waterloo, uh, Canada Research Chair in Planning and Housing. Also want to take a look at some of the social uh, media reaction we've gotten or online reaction, Karen Johnson via Aircheck. She's in Sherbrooke, Quebec. She says, I'm 73. I'm a retired nurse. I was living in Kelowna in an apartment in a house, but the house was sold. Not being able to afford rent in BC, I desperately tried to find something affordable anywhere in Canada. I ended up in Quebec where I know no one and I don't speak French. Rents are cheaper here. I have no doctor and probably never will again. Jacinta Lilly on Twitter says, I've been wanting to move, but all the rentals are too expensive. I currently pay less than what a bachelor's studio is going for in Ottawa. My rent alone increased by $100 instead of the $10 to $20 when I started renting. And, and there's a name here, I don't know how to pronounce it's on Twitter, but I'll try. Athanasius Stukas says, it's not just the money. Landlords are demanding the same things as mortgage lenders and more like criminal checks, job history, lots of references, no pets, more financial info. How far have you gone to secure an apartment? How are you dealing with soaring rents and a scarce supply of rental units uh, in Canada? This is our topic this week on Cross Country Checkup, and you can give me a call at 1-888-416-8333. Maline Brinelson is calling us from Sudbury, Ontario. Hi, Maline. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. So I see you rent out a unit where you live. What's that experience like? It's a mixed bag. I've been a landlord on and off for years. I've been fortunate to be able to be a landlord, I should say, on and off for years. And I've had some excellent tenants, and then I've had some terrible tenants. Mm -hmm. And my most recent tenant that's gone now was he was fine but he left about three thousand dollars worth of damage that i have to pay for out of my pocket and i don't charge a lot for rent because i recognize you know that we have an issue and i would like to contribute to making canada a little more affordable Mm -hmm. but i have to agree with cheryl and i've been a little bit with ryan too in a sense that you know as small landlords we don't have any protections to speak of once a tenant is in, I've had a tenant stay for six months. She simply refused to move and didn't pay rent and left a ton of damage when she when she did finally leave. And I had no recourse. I went to the landlord tenant board and and was dismissed essentially by by the board. And I think maybe part of the solution could be because Tenants, of course, have, of course, they have to have protections. And there are many unscrupulous landlords out there. But perhaps we need to split the landlord-tenant 
act up in such a way that small ten, small landlords like myself who live on the premises have some protections so that when we get tenants in like your second previous call is talked about, you know, she couldn't have a smoker because she's asthmatic or you mm-hmm. can't have pets or whatever, that we can put those things in place. Whereas commercial landlords, you know, should not be able probably to do that. And, you know, we need rent control. There's no doubt. But we also need to make sure that we can keep pace with inflation mm-hmm. when when that, you know, when that's an issue. Yeah. Um, Malene, you, you, you sound very reasonable. And uh, and I will ask Brian uh, in, in a little bit about uh, protections for for landlords, especially landlords who, as you point out, are living in the premises. And, and I see in the notes here, when you were talking to our screener, you, you brought up something that's interesting, is that if people who are renting out, let's say, a suite in their house are having the kinds of problems that occasionally, not always, but occasionally you've run into, <laughs> it, it potentially makes Airbnb a more attractive option for the, for the house owner. It sure does, and that's what I'm struggling with now. When my my current tenant moves out in not too long, is do I go to Airbnb instead? Do I go short term because I, you know, what do I do when I get if I get a tenant that that doesn't meet live up to what the expectation or the agreement between us is, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Airbnb, I'm not stuck with someone. Yeah. And and yet, I mean, a lot of cities, a lot of communities, really frustrating that so many rental units uh, end up being uh, rented out on on short-term rentals, right? And we need, exactly. we need more long-term stable rentals for, for people across the country. So, yeah, really good points, and, Malene. And that, and that, if I may, that, that's exactly the point, right, is we have to make it better for small-term Small landlords like yeah. myself. Yeah. And well, also, as an aside, if I might, one okay. suggestion that I think would be helpful is maybe people who have lots of space in their, in their, in their houses could be incentivized as well to convert some, some portion of it into self-contained units by the government with yep. extra protections in the in the Landlord-Tenant Act. Yeah. R- really, really uh, good points that you're raising, Malene. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You have a good day. Okay, let's go to Oshawa, Ontario now. Rick Shaw is calling us. Hi, Rick. Hi. How are you doing? I'm yeah. doing. I'm doing well. So, uh, how, how difficult has it been for you to secure affordable rental housing? Okay. Well, I appreciate that you are trying to get both sides to the story because there are two sides to this coin, no mm-hmm. doubt. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm on the side of the of the of the tenant because I am one, and uh, my story is similar to a previous caller who was evicted uh, with a rent eviction. Um, during COVID, I also lost my house. I was a house owner for 13 mm-hmm. years, and I wasn't able to keep up with the payments. I lost my job with COVID uh, when I came, and I was struggling, and I ended up actually being evicted from my own house. Okay? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's the only part of the story, though. The, the, the real nightmare, it was trying to find a rental afterwards. I, f- I think it was actually easier to get approved to, get, to buy a house 13 years ago than it is to get a rental now. Um, we, our family is uh, pretty big. It's six, six of us. And we were only able to get a two-bedroom rental. And that was only because we had help from my sister-in-law, whose credit rating was much better than, than ours. Ours was really bad. And, uh, but the, they, they demand such high credit scores just to get a rental. And it, it wasn't a house. Right. First, we tried to rent the house, and that just didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. We just weren't able to get a house at all. So now we're in a building, 
that is roach infested and it's a, a two bedroom apartment and the only reason we're there is because of my sister-in-law's help she actually got the place on our behalf mm-hmm. that's how far we've had to go uh, you uh, don't have to answer this question rick but i will ask it uh, how much is your rent I don't mind you asking, um, because actually, compared to other people, it's not that bad. It's just over 2000 a mm-hmm, month. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was in the house, we were paying less than that for the mortgage. So, oh. so it is more, uh, but I, pr- I realize it's not as bad as other people are paying. And that's, I mean, what a, what a struggle. I and mean, you said you have a family yep. of six? Yeah. In a two-bedroom yeah. uh, unit, um, what do you? How do you see the next? This is a question I've asked a few people before, and I'll ask you: the next two yeah. or three or four years, how do you think that is going to unfold for you when it comes to housing? Well, you know, they say hope springs eternal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hope things get better, but but I, my hope is actually quite faint because I can I mention something? It's a bit of an elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, but. This is actually a big factor in this, um, with the rental skyrocketing the way it has. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there any other country besides Canada that brings in over a million immigrants every year? I don't think there is. And that's what's happening. Just this morning on CBC News, they, they, they said that um, year of, uh, in the last uh, 24, uh, 12 months, we've had an increase of uh, 1.5 million immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, not, I'm not against immigrants because I was an immigrant. I know you have been, and I, you know, I am a, an immigrant myself. But to have that many at this time when there is a housing crunch, a shortage, mm-hmm. and then to bring a million people in the country, does that make any sense at all? Well, you know, you, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated, right? It'll be interesting. And we've touched on this in the program uh, a little bit, but uh, it'd be interesting to, like the math is complicated because a lot of the people who are coming here are taking, are, are, are actually filling jobs that are otherwise going unfilled, sometimes uh, high skilled jobs, sometimes less skilled jobs. Um, and they in turn are, they're making money and they are paying taxes um, and, you know, we did a show that, that kind of looked at uh, immigration and housing a few weeks ago. And one of the things our experts talked a lot about was the importance of changing our system to create more affordable housing for all the people who need it, whether they're new to Canada or your situation, right? I mean, you're somebody who's in a situation where you need access to better quality affordable housing than you currently have. So, Rick, it's it's an interesting situation uh, to be in. And, and hopefully, as you say, given that hope springs eternal, hopefully that means that uh, you will end up getting to change uh, your your situation. Uh, just before the top of the clock, I'm going to try to get to one more call here. Uh, and this is another landlord calling us from Camrose, Alberta, Leslie Linball. How are you, Leslie? I'm doing all right. So How you own, you? I'm good. I see you own a home and you rent out some of the bedrooms to tenants. What's your experience been like? I do. It was really interesting listening to Cheryl and Maline and the experiences that they've had. I'm also a smaller landlord and so I'm renting rooms in my house and it makes a big difference for me to be able to afford my home on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, you know, I'm fortunate that I haven't had the same kind of issues that they have, but one of the things that I put into play um, earlier on was to write um, kind of shorter term rental contracts, four to eight months. A lot of my renters are students. 
And so I just want to make sure that we're a good fit because I also occupy that space with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to make sure that I, I have a little bit of protection in, for myself. Because if you're in, in Alberta, if you're on a month-to-month rental contract, there's really strict rules about how and when you might terminate that month-to-month contract. So mm-hmm. that's why I work with a fixed-term rental. But one of the big things for me in this conversation is always that um, as a property owner, my renters are creating equity for me. And I take that quite seriously that you know, the money that you are, that you are, you know, scrimping and saving and trying to make something happen with is going directly into my equity. It also, um, because I occupy space in that home, that I'm able to um, have different kind of deductions for tax purposes as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of my bills and my insurance and all of that kind of stuff um, is also tax deductible. And so then when it comes to around Christmas time, usually is when I do it, is I take a look at my finance for the year and I'm like, hey, like these people have contributed so much to my equity, I'm going to give them a portion of their rent back for December because usually your student loan is at its end or you just need some extra money for Christmas if you're living in my place and you're commuting from another city for work or, or that kind of purpose. So, I, yeah. I, I just think that even in small, like, I mean, I'm not sure that you'll have anyone that's like a large rental company that's coming mm-hmm. in to talk about the feasibility of that to do it in a larger scale. But I think if I can do it as a, you know, as a single income property owner with renters in my house, then why couldn't a large company be able to take some of their equity and put it back into the pockets of renters? I love moments like this on the program where we hear something that, at least for me, and I'll bet you a lot of our listeners have never heard before, kind of a, a compassionate landlord. Um, and uh, those uh, end-of-year refunds must be so much appreciated. And Leslie, we appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to or perhaps watching Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio and CBC News Network. But this is the time where we say goodbye to our TV viewers as we continue the show live on CBC Radio and CBC Gem. Rosemary Barton Live is next on CBC News Network. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio. We have roughly 30 minutes left on our main topic. And then we'll switch gears a bit with this week's Ask Me Anything. This past Thursday, British Columbia reinstated mask mandates in healthcare settings. Another reminder that COVID is still here and is still making people sick. With schools starting, with Thanksgiving weekend just a few days away, we're speaking to a pediatric infectious disease specialist about COVID and specifically COVID in kids. You can actually start calling now if you have questions for our AMA, one 888-416-8333. You can text us as well. That number is 226-758-8924. And those numbers also work if you'd like to continue to talk about our main topic, which is how far you've gone to secure an apartment. It's interesting. At the beginning of the show, I said it's not just 
renters we want to talk to. We want to hear from landlords as well, whether you have a big uh, unit that you're renting out or something smaller, maybe a room in your home. And it turns out we have actually heard from a lot of landlords. And we will uh, again. Uh, Linda Martin is in Toronto. And Linda, I see you own 10 rental units in Toronto. Thanks for reaching out to us. Yeah. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. And, and actually in Toronto and in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, um, give us your perspective as, as a landlord um, on this rental crisis. Yeah, so I purchased a combination of 10 properties over approximately 15 years. And I guess what we've noticed since um, COVID is the costs are increasing all around. So it's not just the mortgage increased cost. The trade costs are just absolutely exorbitant. Like if something goes wrong in one of these units, we're paying probably 2x what we did before. Hmm. Even small things, in like snow removal, oh my gosh, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars. So then, we, of course, we get utility increases. So now we're looking at a situation where it really does not make sense anymore to hold these assets because there's no asset appreciation either. So the cash flow situation is just plummeted. And we don't see, um, normally you see your asset going up, so you're not as concerned about cash flow. But now you have higher costs, you don't see assets going up. Um, and it's just a really, it's a, it's a dire uh, dynamic situation, as I'd call it. I would say the tenants are very stressed. Like they're always talking about, we can't afford it. And then we're talking about the fact we can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So I guess a couple of ideas that I wanted to put into the airspace is, number one, in Ontario, because that's where we have our properties. I don't think it is equitable when inflation is plus five, plus seven, plus 10, and the Ontario government comes back and says, no, you can only put rents up plus 2%. What that will do is that will shrink supply because uh, landlords will get out of it. They'll go into industrial or commercial. Um, So that's my first comment. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I think the government needs to look at uh, tax relief on capital gains if you're in residential properties, because otherwise it is a business as a landlord. Um, It's not a social service. It's the only business that I know of, and I'm curious how Brian would answer this Mm -hmm, too, is how did landlords get treated like we were pseudo-government entities? Like if you have, let's say I was running a retail store, when the prices go up, you can just automatically put them up because it is a a business on the landlord side. So um, the other thing, Ian, I would say is we're seeing so many more people. So if we put a unit up for rent, Mm-hmm. We're going to get like, instead of having one, we'll have three. And I totally understand that it's a creative solution to have more people in a small unit. But then then it just, it's, I mean, from a landlord perspective, more wear and tear. So I don't know. That's my offering. I'm, I'm curious what you'd have to say about that. Yeah, well, so I, I just, I really enjoy the fact that that you and some of the other people who are renting out units, um kind of trusted us enough to call and tell your story and and put a human face on, you know, landlords. Like they're 
killing us, these landlords. They're charging so much and they're they're trying to, you know, rent evict us. And, and it's interesting. That's certainly not the case with the people who are calling. I guess uh, maybe that makes sense. So you're giving us an interesting perspective on some of the challenges you face. And, and I absolutely will put some of this to Brian in just a moment because uh, I know that he has some views on this, but it's an interesting thing. You know, you're, you're in this as a, as a private venture, um, and uh, but then there's a huge social you know, reason to protect tenants and make housing more affordable. So how do we, how do we bridge that gap, right? How do we make, you know, something economically feasible for you while at the same time providing affordable, safe, secure housing for people out there? Linda, thank you very much for calling. You're welcome. Thank so you. We're going to go to Brian Doucette in just a moment, but uh, I want to talk to another person who's seen this from the tenant side. Um, you know, housing is is a scarce commodity for so many people, including university students. Tara Carter is the vice president of the University of King's College Student Union, and we've reached them in Halifax. Hi, Tara. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So you were apartment hunting in the spring in Halifax. And uh, tell us what that was like. Uh, stressful, to sum <laughs> it up. It, it was... Uh, one of the most stressful experiences I've had in my entire life. Um, my housing ended up falling through. So I was going to be homeless for the month of April um, and trying to balance finding a home and finishing up my exams was a really horrible experience. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, you uh, relied on the kindness, I guess, not of strangers, but the kindness of friends. Yeah, I ended up uh, couch surfing at three different friends' house for that entire month. And so you eventually found a place. And uh, again, you can share as much or as little about this as as you want. But uh, I'm curious about the place you're in now, how much it costs and and how many people you're living with. Yeah, um, this is a three bedroom unit. It's uh, $2,070 a month. Um, All utilities except electricity are included. I live with two other folks. It has been a four bedroom for the last... um, I think three or four years and one person was living in a five by eight foot room, um, which was pretty uh, bad. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, that's not a, that's not a livable space. We're speaking to Tara, Tara Carter. They're the vice president of the student union at the University of King's College in Halifax. And our question on the program today, how far have you gone to secure an apartment? Our number one 416 So Tara, your situation, obviously uh, challenging, going from not having a place at all and couch surfing to a place where, um, I mean, it strikes me as expensive for a student, and I think it strikes you that way as well. Um, what yeah. else are you seeing? What are you seeing among other students at uh, at Kings and and uh, and and Dal? Yeah. Um, so some of the students I've been connecting to housing resources have been homeless for uh, weeks or months. I had someone sleeping on my couch for actually three weeks until we were able to help secure them housing. Um, I've had uh, first years, usually at the end of the year. This was an issue when I was actually homeless last year. I was assisting other students who were going to be homeless come May in tracking down apartments on Kijiji, teaching them how to message landlords in a way that will 
curry favor. Um, it's a lot of students being incredibly desperate and it's a lot of upper years who have stable housing and who can renew their leases, who are giving up their couches to students that stay on when they don't have somewheres to be. Yeah. I mean, years ago, decades ago, I was a student at Dalhousie and uh, we did not have to deal with with all these issues. It was pretty easy to find an apartment uh, within my budget and the same thing for, for my friends. And, you know, one thing we did not have on campus when I was a student was a food bank. Uh, there is one now at Dalhousie and uh, I, I hear eventually at King's as well, the affiliated college. And you are among the people relying on that food bank. I am. Yeah, I visit the Dalhousie Food Bank uh, once every two weeks. And when the King's Food Security Initiative gets their pantry up and running, I will probably also be frequenting that space. So, you know, I mean, I guess it's a little different for a student because uh, but but I will ask you the question that I've asked other people before, which is where do you see yourself in a year or two, specifically given the housing situation? Um, I see myself spending a year in Halifax longer than I planned. This was supposed to be my final year at university, but I can't afford the cost of tuition and food and housing and be a full-time student. So I'm working three separate jobs right now to be able to afford things and taking part-time classes. So I'm going to be here for a year longer than planned. And then I'm probably not going to stick around in Halifax. I love it here. I'm a born and raised Nova Scotian. I want to come back. I want this to be my community, but I can't afford it right now. And with the money I'm going to have to pay back on student loans, it's it's not going to be worth it. And I don't quite know where I'm going to go. I'm going to suss that out. But I'd like to go somewhere that doesn't have the highest provincial tax in the country. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear it is so tough right now with the rental costs uh, to make ends meet and that you uh, are contemplating leaving your beloved Nova Scotia. Tara, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tara Carter, Vice President of the University of King's College Student Union, and we reach them in Halifax. Our AMA is coming up with uh, Dr. Fatima Kakar, and she's going to talk to us about COVID, RSV, and other respiratory illnesses. She is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. We've had her on the program before, and she can give us the latest on the science and also what she's seeing at St. Justin Children's Hospital in Montreal. You can email questions to checkup at cbc.ca, chat in real time on Facebook Live, or tweet us at CheckupCBC. And of course, you can phone us too. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. I'm Ian Hanamansing. This is Cross Country Checkup. We are live from Vancouver. And uh, Brian Doucette is uh, our expert on the housing portion of this program, an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo. And Brian, uh, I have so many calls that I want to get back to them fairly quickly, but I also want to ask you a couple of questions uh, because we're hearing from more landlords than I thought we would. Um, They sound pretty reasonable. They sound like caring people. And so I, I guess I'll ask you two questions about landlords. First of all, when some of them talk about how difficult it is for them to sever ties with a problematic tenant, if they are telling the story accurately, um, you know, $35,000 to try to get a tenant out who's breaching the uh, contract regarding smoking seems like an onerous thing for a landlord. Um, Are these exceptional stories or does this speak to a problem where we need to, I don't know, strike a different balance in terms of rights between landlords and tenants? 
Yeah, I mean, let me start off by saying, you know, kudos to you and your team. I think this has been a, a great conversation today and, and lots of different perspectives in a really civil and, and, and engaged discussion. Um, I think the far bigger problem is actually the harassment and the, the pressures that tenants feel. So we have lots of stories, for example, of every tenant in a building given being given an eviction notice, not in good faith, right? I've heard stories of tenants who give a check to a landlord and the landlord doesn't cash that check until the end of the month in the hope that it bounces because this is a very low income tenant. Um, and that gives reason, you know, cause for that tenant to be evicted. Hmm. I think the far bigger problem is what, what's happening to tenants. Yeah, that, that, let, let me just jump in and say that that's really interesting. So for example, um, the, uh, where everybody in the apartment building got an eviction notice. I mean, you're 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 a professor. You've done the research. Like you've verified that this happened. Um, what consequences were there for doing this? Because presumably, this is a, a case of a landlord that's trying to intimidate some of those tenants into leaving their homes to and then to boost the rent, right? Exactly. And you use the the right word, intimidation. Um, we hear lots of this, and if tenants aren't organized, so in some of the examples where where we've done our research. Tenants are organized, they speak to each other, and they all say, hey, I got this eviction notice. So did I. What, what's going on here? They realize that this is just a ploy. Oftentimes, tenants don't. They panic. You know, you receive an eviction notice, right? The only person that can evict you, right, is through the courts. A landlord gives you an eviction notice. It doesn't mean anything until it's actually enforced. However, many tenants will panic. They're afraid of being homeless. They just jump at any opportunity they can to get out, especially if that comes with, you know, years and years of, of, of harassment. But let's take a look at the big picture. I mean, landlords are business people, right? Um, there's risk inherent to any business. There is an inherently uneven power relationship between a landlord and a tenant um, that I think we need to contextualize within all these conversations. There's also very little evidence that would indicate that if you put modest regulations on rental housing, i.e. stronger like rent controls and tenant protections. There's very little evidence that this leads to either a reduction in existing supply or that it actually stops new construction. And the flip argument to that, the other side, is you know, if a landlord is making less profit per unit, they probably actually, because of things like rent control, they probably actually need to make and build more units to make the same amount of profit. And we regulate pretty much everything, right? We can't go and buy a child seat that isn't regulated by in some way, shape, or form, right? Not necessarily in price, but in other things, in safety regulations. It mm -hmm. doesn't stop the production of um, child seats. It doesn't stop the production of food or anything else like that. So why would we expect that if we put modest regulations on rent increases, especially when a unit becomes vacant, that that would all of a sudden leave us with no rental housing? You know, one of your landlords talked about getting out of the the rental housing game, and mm -hmm. you, I've I've heard stories of this as well. And there are certainly larger landlords that are now looking at the numbers and and thinking the same as well. Even though a tenant is building up equity into that landlord's, you know, bank account every month, building up equity into the the property that they're renting. But my answer to that would be: if there are landlords that want to get out, look at nonprofits within your communities. I was on a, a panel in Hamilton last week with someone from the Aboriginal Housing Services uh, uh, of Ontario, and they were explicit in saying, you know, we want to buy that rental housing stock. And what do organizations like that do? Nonprofits, community organizations, community land trusts—they decommodify the housing. They keep the rental stock, 
but they keep it affordable or as affordable as they can because they remove the profit motive. So landlords that don't want to be in that business anymore, if you own, I mean, it's tough if it's a place that you live in as well, but if you own other units, talk to local nonprofits because many of them are just looking for properties to buy. Many have access to financing and they would keep that property affordable in perpetuity. And that's really interesting, right? Because we heard from the woman who has 10 units in Kitchener-Waterloo in Toronto. She asked the question, this is a business for me. It's not a social venture. How am I supposed to make this work? And she thought you may have a response to that. And I guess your response is, well, then put it in the hands of somebody for whom it is a social venture. Yeah. If, if it's not working, sell. And there are lots of nonprofits. There are lots of community organizations that are basically priced out of housing at the moment because for-profit landlords can pay more. So if for-profit landlords no longer want to get into the, no, no longer want to be in that business, um, step aside and let others who want to keep that housing, genuinely want to keep that housing affordable, decommodify it, remove the profit from it. You know, we, there was a report even by Scotiabank uh, earlier in the year, and it said that Canada needs to double its percentage of social and non-market housing if we're to just reach the OECD average. We can do that by building new supply, but we can also do that by acquiring existing stock and bringing it into a variety of non-market and non-profit ownerships. Interesting to hear you say all of this because you're somebody who studies it. It's not just kind of interesting theories, but uh, based on on you know what you've studied as well, Brian. We, we will come back to you one more time uh, before Great. the end of this portion of the show. Brian Doucette, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo. But before we come back to Brian, let's get to the phones. I'm going to do well, hopefully at least three calls before we switch topics to our COVID, uh, ask me anything. Kerry Shepard is in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hi, Kerry. Hi there. I see you are a school teacher, according to the notes here, who can't afford the rent in Halifax. So what are you doing? Well, um, I'll just give you a bit of back history there. I actually, I moved to the Yukon and drove 7,000 kilometers across the country in August and got up there and uh, was put into a mold-infested house in a First Nation community. And um, I have anaphylactic shock to mold, so I ended up in clinic. And I went to the head of housing and told them that um, that this was not acceptable for me. And they said, you know, basically to get in line because there's so many people in so many First Nation communities that are standing in line for housing that is filled with mold, uh, waiting five years to get into a house. Mm. And houses haven't been built for 30 years. So I turned around, lost my job, and drove back to Halifax, where I'm from, another 7,000 kilometers, got back here and how to start looking for housing. Um, it's not a surprise to me. It's been 32 years of this, of traveling throughout. And Halifax is just, you know, between the whole uh, abandonment of, you know, university students, they used to have grade 13 in Toronto and Ontario. And then, then when that happened, that university students started kind of coming into Nova Scotia. They started, a lot of parents were buying up homes, which caused an increase in value in homes. And then the next step was COVID. And over the years, what I think is the biggest problem is the Airbnb. So I've been just driving around in vehicles 
all throughout the province. Mahone Bay mostly, Lunenburg County, Halifax. Um, right now I'm down in Salmon River and Hectanuga, which is down by La Pointe de l'Anglise, Church Point, Nova Scotia. Um, I've been looking through social media and just watching the conversations between people and hearing what they have to say. I mean, I have a lot of capital as a teacher. I can go on and say, look, I'm a mature woman. I don't have pets. I don't have children, no dependents. I'm a school teacher. Can you rent me a place? People usually are willing to jump hoops for me because I look like the ideal candidate. Um, my biggest concern in having conversations with other people is just, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm working so hard to just try to keep a roof over my head mm-hmm. and, you know, to the point where I'm driving 14,000 kilometers to a job and then, you know, going to the very back, back country of Nova Scotia mm-hmm. in a vehicle, paying outrageous gas to get anywhere to find work. And I speak three languages. I have two degrees. I've been 32 years traveling around the world. I've lived all over this. Like I've lived in Mexico, Cuba, Spain, England, Japan, Korea, British Columbia, all throughout in First Nation communities, all across Nova Scotia. This is where I'm born and raised. Mm-hmm. And yet... I'm just struggling to make ends meet and how that looks to people that are making minimum wage, $14 an hour with a net of $1,600 a month. When the government is saying we have this affordable housing solution, they go into a low income community, put up a sky rise and charge anywhere between $2,600 and $3,500 a month rent. Yeah. Carrie, can I ask you how, how much are you paying for your rent now? I'm paying um, 1500 a mm-hmm. month for a tiny house, which is, uh, like, I don't have a stove. <laughs> I just have, like, a little, uh, you know, it's literally a tiny house. It's a cute little house in the front of a lake, which most people would just love to have. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, even in that conversation with the person that rented it to me, who was also a teacher, she had someone else who came before me who was a person with a child who needed a place. And she said, you know, I, I would much rather go with you. Mm-hmm. And I could see why. But yeah. I can say that I really feel so badly okay. for people that are, you know, not in privileged positions. Not that I'm in a privileged position, but my biggest concern is, is like, where are we all going with this? Yeah. All right. Yes, yep. it's hard to hear like landlords go on about the, the striving situations they're in, but I don't think it has to be an us versus them. Yep. I think our government is, does a great job of putting us towards each other, but at the end of the day, we need to focus on tenants first because having 10 homes and taking a risk with the business and increasing your equity is not the same as worrying whether or not you're going to sleep in your car tonight. I hear you, Carrie. Thank you very much for for your call and your very passionate uh, point of view. Um, So I appreciate that. Let's go to Sault Ste. Marie now. Uh, Amy DiNardo is a tenant who's uh, calling us. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you? Good. So you used to live in Toronto. I did. And I I moved to Toronto. I'm 
born in Sault Ste. Marie mm-hmm. um, and raised in Sault Ste. Marie. And I moved to Toronto for university. And I, you know, the, the cost, everyone knows the cost of living in Toronto is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So I decided to come back to Sault Ste. Marie uh, this year. And, you know, I work from home and I'm really grateful for the cost of living here. It's it's much easier to live here. But coming back to Sault Ste. Marie was quite a shock because I've noticed the amount of people who are struggling. And there's homelessness. There is uh, food banks that are empty. Mm-hmm. Um I don't, you know, when every month that I pay my rent, um, my, my, my stomach drops a little bit and I have a full-time job. And I just, I don't know what people do here who make minimum wage. So St. Marie is not a city with, you know, there are people who make lots of money, but, you know, a lot of people make minimum wage or a little bit higher than that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how people are managing yeah. and the, the amount of people on the streets that I've noticed since I've moved back since the last time I've lived here, it really breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've managed to find a place. I did. And um, unfortunately, like the cost of rent, you know, is quite high even for me, but I am able to afford it, thank God. I don't know what I'm going to do in the coming year when the rent is going to be raised again. Um, But the average rent here is versus the wage is, they're not equal. Mm -hmm. Amy, thank you very much for giving us the perspective from the Sioux. Thank you. I am going to go to uh, Brian Doucette uh, now, but just before that, uh, David Shu has been waiting on the line. David, I'm not going to be able to get to your call because we're we're running out of time here, but I do want to read a little bit from the notes that I got uh, of your conversation with the screener. You own multiple buildings in Vancouver, had to take out personal loans because the expenses are so much and you can't raise the rent enough to cover that off. Uh, and and you, you make a really good point. You said the solution here is to increase the amount of rental stock to make it profitable for people who invest in rental stock. So that's from uh, David Chu, who called in. But as I say, I can't, uh, I don't have time to go to the call, but I can go to Brian Doucette one last time, our uh, expert who's been with us. And, uh, and Brian, we have like maybe three minutes here. But first, you know, David Chu's point is one that we've heard before from people, whether they are landlords with a couple of units, or in his case, he's got um, multiple buildings. Um, so you mentioned that that owners who can't make a go of it in the rental market could sell their properties to you know social housing entities. But what about somebody like David, who I think wants to continue to be in the business, but feels that the current structure doesn't work for him to be able to cover his expenses? Is there something that could be changed on the parts of municipal or federal governments to to make it more attractive to somebody like him? I mean, I think on the one hand, um, we can make it easier to build, to, to allow for more units in a, in a, on a residential property, right? We have um, in many municipalities, uh, you can only build one unit on a, a plot of land, a sort of what, what people call exclusionary zoning. So permitting two or three or four um, extra units as of right, I think that helps in, in many ways. It's not a silver bullet, but it certainly does help. 
And I think, you know, I think David is right in that our supply of housing does need to grow as our population is growing. And our population is growing quite rapidly now. So our supply of housing does need to grow, but we need to really think critically and carefully about what kind of supply we're building. The other thing that I think would be helpful for everyone, landlords and tenants, would be would be to have some sort of form of a rental registry. So where you don't know the names, but you know the tenancy agreements, you know the prices, you know the rents, right? And just have that registered. That data sort of exists, but it's not accessible in a way that, you know, landlords and tenants can can both benefit from it. And I think having that as an official aspect of of the the kind of information that we collect would be really useful and just more transparent for everyone. And it would hopefully avoid some of the situations that we've heard on the show where people are sort of, you know, nudge, nudge, give me another 500 bucks and, and everything's sorted, right? I think that would make it transparent for everybody. And, and that would go a long way to, to dealing with what David is talking about. In the remaining minute that we have, if I were to ask you the classic radio host question to an expert, um, if you could pick one thing that would have a big impact on helping fix this rental housing crisis, is there an answer to that? Is there something at the top of the list? I mean, there's a lot of things that make a difference. Um, and there's things like, you know, putting in regulations to basically end rent evictions, which New Westminster, British Columbia managed to do. Uh, they managed to solve that problem and um, had some great regulations around that that other cities across the country are now looking at trying to emulate. Tenant protections as well. Uh, Burnaby, British Columbia has some very strong tenant protections, which I think are great. But the number one thing that I think would make a difference for tenants would be a unit-based system of rent control or vacancy control. So when a unit becomes vacant, the rent is still regulated and controlled. That removes a huge part of the incentive for landlords to evict sitting tenants, and it helps to keep the supply that is already affordable to people on low and moderate incomes from being eroded. Because right now we're seeing a massive erosion in that supply, the supply that is affordable to the callers that have called in today saying they're struggling for rent. If we had good rent control, consistent rent control across provinces, across the country, that would go a long way to protecting the existing supply and keeping it affordable. Well, not surprising. You did have an answer to the possibly unfair question that I just asked you. So thank you very much. And thanks for all the guidance and uh, insight that you've given us throughout the program, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ian. Brian Doucette, an Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in City Planning and Housing at the University of Waterloo. It's time for Ask Me Anything with Dr. Fatima Kakar on kids, COVID, and respiratory viruses. Ask me anything! It is difficult to predict what will happen this fall regarding the co-circulation of influenza, RSV, and COVID-19. A lot of people around me get sick. Uh, but I think a lot of people kind of got tired of all the vaccination. The first thing is to picture your child as a virus factory. Every breath, every cough, every sneeze that comes out of that cute little face is full of viruses. 
Well, fall is officially here, which means the respiratory season is underway. And that includes the risk of COVID, which seems to be rising in various parts of the country. This week, Health Canada officially approved Pfizer's one-dose vaccine targeting the Omicron variant, which will be available in the coming weeks, along with flu shots. And this past Thursday, British Columbia reinstated the mask mandate in healthcare settings. So with Thanksgiving coming up and families gathering indoors, you may need another reminder on how to keep your kids safe this fall. Dr. Fatima Kakar is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Justin Hospital and an associate professor in pediatrics at the University of Montreal. She's here to take your calls and answer questions for the next 30 minutes. You can ask her anything about COVID, RSV, and other respiratory illnesses. Our number 1-888-416-8333. Dr. Kakar, it's been a while. Really nice to have you on the program again. It's nice to be back, even though I wish viral season wasn't here. uh, It's a good time to talk about it. (laughs) Well, and speaking of that, anecdotally at your hospital, what are you seeing when it comes to COVID? It it is back. So I was covering the pediatric ward last week, and I always see what's happening on the ward as just a snapshot of what's going on in communities. And for the first time in many months, I've had hospitalizations for COVID. So kids getting sick alongside with COVID, RSV, and uh, rhinovirus. And I think that the biggest message I've had or the thing I've seen is that nobody thought it was COVID. So kids are coming in, they're very sick, and the parents are shocked when they when the test comes back positive for COVID. So we're seeing a lot of it, and most people uh, didn't know that they had COVID. That's interesting because in my circles, it's kind of the other way around. Anytime people you know, start having cold-like or flu-like symptoms, they immediately think, oh man, I think this is it. This is COVID. What do you think is happening in Montreal that uh, that at least in the people you're seeing, you know, assume it's not COVID? What's happened in the last couple of weeks is that kids have gone back to school and daycare. So there's been this explosion of viruses. So kids have been just getting cold after cold after cold. And parents have stopped wondering if it's COVID or just another cold. Mm. So they've just assumed that the older sibling with the runny nose or the sore throat is just a routine cold. And so I think with younger kids, because they've been getting sick so often these last couple of weeks, parents have just stopped worrying about COVID and just assumed that it's something ordinary until they get brought into hospital. Fair enough. That makes a lot of sense. What about RSV? Is uh, Are you seeing much of that? That has started, unfortunately, and we were hoping we were going to have a different year than last year. We were hoping it was going to be later in November, December. But as of last week, our first hospitalized cases are are here. Um, So there's a lot of pressure and urgency to get RSV vaccination up and running and prevention for the younger kids because RSV really does overwhelm the pediatric hospitals. And we tend to be full because little babies get into such trouble from it. Um, So as of last week, it is officially here and it's going to be on the rise, we, we anticipate. I feel like parents of uh, of babies and infants know about RSV. They probably hear about it from their primary care uh, um, doctor. But for those of us who don't have little kids, uh, remind us what RSV is. RSV is like the common cold. So it really causes runny nose, respiratory symptoms. It's just that in babies, because it creates such inflammation, they have a lot of trouble breathing. But RSV can actually be really severe in older adults as well, people with asthma, chronic lung disease, and even the elderly. There's actually an RSV vaccine that's just been approved for the elderly, the older populations. So it's something that can be really severe in people that have some sort of underlying illness. Let's talk about the COVID uh, shots, the vaccines. I've kind of, I hate, I shouldn't admit this live on the air, but I've kind of lost track of what's out there and when people should be having it and what's going on. What's the update uh, on, on COVID shots? 
You've nailed it. Everybody's lost track of their last (laughs) doses, what's going on. The bottom line is that we need to think about COVID vaccine like your annual flu flu shot. So you'll be getting a flu shot and you'll be getting an updated COVID vaccine. So as of last week, there are two updated COVID vaccines available, both Pfizer and Moderna. So it's really time to get your updated vaccine for the new circulating variants. People are wondering, well, I've had two shots. I've had one shot. I've had COVID. What's the recommendation? In general, if it's been six months since your last vaccine or six months since you've had COVID, you really should get an updated shot. So really, we're thinking of it like an annual flu shot, an annual COVID shot that's going to be really targeted to the variants we have right now. We're here with Dr. Fatima Kakar, a pediatric infectious disease specialist in Montreal. And in a few moments, I'm going to go to the phone lines to take your calls. You can ask her anything about COVID or RSV or the flu. Our number is one 888-416-8333. Dr. Kakar, let me ask you some uh, quick questions and uh, just uh, update in terms of the vaccine. First of all, if one were to go to social media, uh, as I do, you see a lot of people saying these uh, vaccines have not been properly tested. They're not safe. Um, I assume that's uh, wrong. What would you say uh, on those points? Exactly. And I think, you know, we're three years into this and we've got now three years and millions of doses given and really strong surveillance systems across the world looking at signals. And so we don't have signals of adverse safety events with both of these vaccines, both the Moderna and the Pfizer shot. And I think people initially, I understand when it was released, people had questions, they were brand new, it was a new technology, but we're three years into it. And really, there is no clear signal of any adverse effects. And the contrary is true. We've seen how well it's done to prevent people from getting sick, preventing hospitalizations, preventing deaths from COVID. So I urge them to look at the other side of things and, you know, three years worth of experience showing how well these vaccines have worked. It's really uh, for the next phase of this winter that we need to keep that up. And and so let me uh, sort of underscore that or have you underscore that in, in, in a follow-up question, and that is early on in this pandemic when there was no shot and then there was a shot, that was such a big step. Like we went from, you know, having to, to lock down in order to stay safe and then all of a sudden we had the vaccine that we could take. And early on, uh, it it could mean preventing getting COVID or at least greatly reducing the chances we would get COVID. Then we have the variants and then we have a lot of people out there who have had COVID. Where are we at right now in terms of the correlation between getting the shot and and getting COVID or getting COVID with a serious case? What's the correlation between the shot and illness? So more and more, we realize that the the shot won't always prevent you from getting the infection just because the the variants are mutating so quickly. So it's never going to be 100% adapted maybe for the virus that you catch, but you're going to have immunity. And when you encounter that virus with immunity, you are going to get less sick. So there's countless stories and people have had that personal experience where they only had a runny nose, they only had a sore throat. Whereas if they hadn't been vaccinated and if they think back to their first COVID or those who were unfortunate enough to get it, then People were severely sick. People were out of it for 10 days, two weeks. People were, um, they felt like they'd been run over and really incapacitated. So the difference now is that really getting the vaccine is going to prevent you from getting that sick again. It's not necessarily going to prevent you from getting it, but you won't get sick. So you might just have a mild illness, which I think for most people is a game changer because you're not going to be um, incapacitated for all those all those weeks. 
We are live on Cross Country Checkup with Dr. Fatima Kakar. Our number is 1 888 416 8333. Our text number is 226 758 8924. And you can ask Dr. Kakar anything on COVID, RSV, and the flu. Anastasia McKenna is calling from St. Thomas, Ontario. Hi. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. What's your question for Dr. Kakar? Um, I'm so glad. I'm I'm famous now. I'm on CBC. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm 59 years old at Christmas time. Um, I did get I'm, I didn't the first time I got sick. I didn't know if it was COVID or not, but I was pretty sure. And it was like one month of hell. Mm. That was back during what was that? 21, 22 ish, early or 2022. I think it was 21. Um, then I got it again last year and I got all my boosters and I knew I didn't expect that I was not going to get sick. I just wanted to get less sick. Mm-hmm. So just exactly the way the doctor explained it, that's what was going through my head. And I was surprised when I did test because it was five or six days after the symptoms started. I decided to test, and I'm I, I was an RN, so I I really read the instructions carefully, and followed all the protocols on the package for the rapid test. Mm-hmm. Made sure my environment was clean. It was just like I was in the hospital, and then I did exactly what you're supposed to do with the swab, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I was positive, so I ended up with a deep tissue wound at the same time. And I had to go to the hospital, and it was the second time this my hand had swollen up. Mm-hmm. And in 21, they had to go in and actually do some surgery. Right. This time, I went in, and it looked worse, and it was worse, but they didn't do anything surgically. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I had it when I went in, so I yep. was lucky enough to get a private room. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have a question for Dr. Kakar? Y- yes, I do. So... Um, I'm obviously beyond the six months and I know that they're like, I called the pharmacy and they do have, they do have um, vaccines, but they didn't have the the current vaccine with the current variant. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if like I'm six, 59 years old and I have autoimmune disease and it seems like every couple of years I end up with something else. I keep getting worse right. and worse. And so you're wondering when you should, whether you should have a booster right now or wait for the right. new booster, right? Yeah, that, which well, is a I great... Want, yeah, I want, yeah, I want that new booster. Yep. I'm worried about having to wait till other yep. people have to get it. That's yeah. kind of my thing. Yeah, no, no, no that's, that's, that's a great question. So, uh, Dr. Kakar, a couple of things, uh, Anastasia, you should know. She is in Montreal, not in Ontario. She's also a pediatric infectious disease specialist, and you, you know, like me, are no longer a kid. Um, but... But, uh, but Dr. Kakar, you may be able to answer the question more generally this way, and that is, because I think a lot of people have this, um, if it's been more than six months since they've had either a booster shot or an infection, and so normally they would be thinking, yeah, you know, it's time to get the shot, should they be waiting for the, the newest version of the shot rather than having it right now? So the good news is the newest versions are here. Um, In Quebec, we're starting as of next week to start uh, vaccinating. Appointment schedules are being made and they are on a priority list. You know, older folks, but Anastasia, you you have underlying conditions, so you would be eligible. And I think it's going to be very similar across country. So both 
the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are approved. They're here. And so their rollout should be happening imminently. Um, so I think you should make your appointment as soon as it opens. And I think uh, in Ontario, it should be very soon because Quebec is starting next week. This year is rolling by so quickly, Dr. Kakar. I forgot. We're in October now. That's right. All, all along, I've been hearing October. October is when we're going to start getting this. So there you go. Excellent. Uh, Dennis Eubanks is, if these notes are correct, in Philadelphia. Hi, our Denise. Hi, Denise. Hi, how you doing? Good, good. What's your question for Dr. Kakar? Mine was uh, concerning the um, difference between the COVID-19 and the RSV mm-hmm. vaccines and the actual disease itself. What um, is the difference? So the difference, first of all, between the vaccines for RSV and COVID? Yes. Okay, Denise, uh, thank you very much. Uh, not, uh, I think this is the first time I've had a call from Philadelphia, so I really appreciate that. Dr. Kakar, first of all, uh, presumably RSV and COVID, two different illnesses, two different viruses, two different um, shots. Uh, where are we at in terms of uh, the RSV vaccine for, do you know, for, for adults? No, and Denise raises a great question because she's in the U.S. And so uh, the RSV vaccine is brand new. So it was recently approved. Um, And I think in some pharmacies in the U.S., it's already being sold. Here in Canada, it's available. But again, it's not under the provincial recommendations yet. So there is a new RSV vaccine for older adults over age 60 with chronic conditions, but it's not readily available. Whereas in the U.S., I think it's much more available right now. And the recommendations are really to discuss with your physician whether they think it's a good idea for you. And I think in general, any older person with underlying lung disease who might be in contact with young kids is a very good candidate for the RSV vaccine. That's RSV, and it really is a very different illness than COVID And that RSV is usually just respiratory. So it really just affects your nose, your lungs, whereas COVID affects your entire system. And the biggest difference um, when people are getting the infection for the first time is that RSV could be really limited, um, especially in healthy people, whereas COVID really causes everything, your muscles to ache, uh, and it can really cause disease in all of your different organs, which is why COVID has been so severe. So in general, COVID much more severe for all people, but RSV much more severe for infants and older adults. Uh, Both have vaccines, but the COVID vaccine is really approved across country uh, in Canada and in the US, and it's publicly available, whereas RSV isn't yet. Denise, thank you very much for that question. And that answer was uh, really interesting. Our next caller is in Edmonton, Francis Retta. Hi, Francis. Hi, Ian. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. What's your question for Dr. Kakar? Uh, well, I came down with COVID on the 18th of, uh, 18th of September, and I am still pos- uh, testing positive. And um, I went through the antivirals, and I'm not sick enough to be hospitalized, but as uh, you, you can tell, my voice is kind of suppressed a little bit. Hmm. And I've got lots of phlegm coming up from when I cough and when I breathe. I can't really take a, a complete full breath without coughing up a little bit. So... Um, I'm not really sure what to do with this. Uh, it, it's kind of an odd thing. I thought I'd, the antivirals kind of kicked in because at one point the T-line on one of the tests was very faint. And the last two tests, uh, the T-line is darker. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where to head. Do I head to an emergency? Do I head to a family doctor? Um, what do I do? Yes, Francis, stay on the line. Uh, Dr. Kakar, what would you say to Francis? No, it's a, it's a very common question, actually. People who've taken Paxlovid sometimes have what they call a rebound effect, where initially the amount of virus and the testing goes down, and then after a week or two, the 
the amount actually goes up and it's almost like your body has fought it off and now it's actually producing um, more uh, more of a response the the so as far as what to do the questions are are you contagious to other people and are you going to be in an environment where you're going to be close to other high-risk people and in general we recommend you still isolate if you're symptomatic and still testing positive but the next question for yourself is could this be a complication after covid now, in general, if you're feeling worse, if you're getting a fever, if you're having more difficulty breathing, you could be having a secondary infection after COVID, a pneumonia, a bacterial infection that settles in after the viral infection. So I would suggest that if you are feeling worse and if you're developing a new fevers, that's definitely a reason to go see your doctor. If you're having trouble breathing and that's a reason to go to emergency. So it's really depending on where you are uh, compared to where you were a few days ago. Francis, do you have a follow-up question for Dr. Kakar? Um, just, just wondering, um, in terms of the breathing, uh, how bad does it have to get before I, I go to the hospital? Because right now, I, I, I'm, I mean, I cough up a little bit of phlegm, and but I can still take a full breath if I take it slowly. So, at what okay. point does the breathing issue become like severe to the point where it triggers off the alarm, go to the emergency? Okay, I'm a pediatrician, so I have to preface by saying that. But in general, if you're able to sleep through the night, that's a sign that you're you're okay. And that if it's only when you're exerting yourself and you're you're doing a lot of work that you're having trouble breathing, generally it should be getting better. But if at any point you're struggling to breathe, you're not able to sleep, um, that's definitely a reason to see your doctor, maybe get a chest x-ray to see what's happening. And um, so it's really depending on where you were and what your baseline is. If you're an asthmatic and you generally have trouble breathing um, versus if you've never had trouble breathing before. So it really depends on, on where you are right now as opposed to where you were a few days ago. But if you're able to sleep through the night, do some general activities, okay, you should be okay. And when in doubt, I mean, if you feel, Francis, that you need to go into emergency, which I know can be long waits, and uh, but still, like when you start feeling worried, um, better, I would say, to err on the side of going in than, than not going in, Francis. Thank you. Uh, Rachel Lay is in uh, Waterloo, Ontario. And uh, Dr. Kakar, you'll be interested to know that after many calls of people who uh, wouldn't go see a pediatric infectious disease specialist, Rachel has a question about uh, her two-year-old. Rachel? Hi there. So my daughter is two years old and we got her first COVID vaccine about a year ago. And then the second one got very delayed because she actually got COVID from daycare. So now we want to go get her second vaccine. But my hesitation is that her first vaccine was at a pediatric clinic where our region specialize in, you know, babies, toddlers only. I'm a little bit hesitant to take her to just a general pharmacist. What's your thought on it? Oh, that's a great question and a good concern. But I honestly, I have such strong faith in our pharmacists and our vaccine, our, our, our everybody who's been doing the COVID vaccines, whether through the clinics or the pharmacies, they're, they're generally very good. And they will tell you if they're not at ease with young kids or toddlers. There are actually certain pharmacies in Quebec that won't vaccinate young kids because they're not at ease with it. So I think if your pharmacy is available and they're willing to do it, they generally have the experience too. So I wouldn't hesitate. Um, people who do vaccines know how to distract and how to minimize the pain. So I wouldn't hesitate. Mm-hmm. Rachel, any follow-up? Is, is there anything I should look where I go to take my vaccine? Like a, for me, I'd love to see a, a specialty pediatric. You know, the staff are really good with toddlers. I would just ask your your site, you know, do they have experience with children? Because many pharmacies are actually used to doing vaccines for influenza and um, 
are now going to be taking up the COVID vaccine. So I would ask the people doing the vaccinations, do they have experience with children? And in general, people who are doing these vaccinations have actually had a long history of doing this for all kinds of routine childhood vaccines. So, um, and people who, who do this generally are those who are the most experienced. I wouldn't hesitate, but I would be safe and just ask them. Rachel, thank you very much for those excellent questions. Let's go to Ottawa, Ontario now. And Joan McKenna is on the line. And Joan, uh, I, I see your question is sort of uh, has some similarities with the gentleman we just spoke to from Alberta. But uh, but go ahead and ask your question to Dr. Kakar. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much for taking my call. So I had contacted COVID last August. My worst symptom is coughing. I'm still coughing. I had uh, chest x-rays. I actually pulled the intercostal muscles in my ribs in September. Then again in in October, um, I saw, well, I'm still seeing a respirologist. So I've done allergy testing. My lung capacity is above normal. Um, I'm waiting to see the ear, nose, and throat, but I, I could be waiting a year and a half, two years. I still have a, a cough. And now it's, it's not as bad. And the only thing that will suppress it is codeine. And I've been through almost four bottles of liquid codeine, codeine because it's the only thing that stops it. And it seems to worsen at night. So I'm just, uh, my question is, do you have anything else to suggest that I can do or try to stop this cough? Otherwise, I'm a healthy, very active uh, no other issues, no medication, nothing. Mm-hmm. And of course, Dr. Kakar can't give sort of specific medical advice to somebody, as you know, Joan, um, who she's just talking to over the phone. But generally speaking, Dr. Kakar, what uh, would you say to Joan? Sure. I mean, two things. First, Joan's story is just another, I just wanted to use it to reiterate how bad COVID can be in adults who, you know, are otherwise healthy. So another reason to plug getting your vaccine, your updated vaccine this this fall, because you can get very sick and have this residual cough. And it's actually quite common to have a post-viral cough that can last for weeks afterwards. And the most important thing is what you're doing. If you're, you know, feeling well, you've seen your doctor and there's no red flags, there's no pneumonias, then you continue on. But there's nothing really effective to treat it if it's not something that's related to asthma, for example. And oftentimes people do use over-the-counter remedies, but these are really just treating the symptoms and the actual post-cough, if it's not a post-viral cough, if it's not limiting your activities, isn't something you necessarily need to treat with things like codeine. So actually for children, we avoid over-the-counter remedies simply because they're just masking, you know, getting that phlegm out, getting that post-viral illness out. And so in general, you don't need to treat it unless it's limiting your activities. We have time for one more call, and it happens to be from Montreal, and I think it's a question a lot of people have, and it's from Maureen Capper. Hi, Maureen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. What's your question for Dr. Kakar? My question is, I have a cold right now. I tested twice um, for COVID. It's negative. Um, but I'm flying out um, on Friday for a short uh, visit, and um, I wanted to take a booster shot before I go, but I read somewhere that um, if, you're, if your immune system is already fighting something else, then your body may not mount uh, enough of an immune response to COVID if you have it. So some people are saying, wait until you're well, don't take the, don't take the booster if you're sick. So I wanted to know what Dr. Pikao thought about that. Yeah, Dr. Kakar? So in general, we do recommend avoiding uh, getting a vaccine while you're actively unwell, but especially if you have a fever. 
in general, if you're at the residual end of an illness, then it's okay to get your, your vaccine. So it really depends where in the stage of your illness are. If you're still acutely unwell, you have a fever, then we do recommend waiting. Um, but I wouldn't wait too long. So I know it's a tough one okay. for you given you're flying out, but I think the vaccines won't be available <laughs> by Friday. So I think um, you'll have to get it on your return. But as a general rule, if you have a fever, that's not the time to get your vaccine. Okay, right. I don't have a fever and I've been sick for a week and I think it's a residual uh, cough now. Um, and how long would it, um, how long would it take to be effective to mount Ew, a yeah. immune reaction generally? So it won't be immediate. So it won't be in time for next week. It'll usually take at least three to four weeks for it to to have effect. And that's why we want people to get them now in time for sort of midwinter to Christmas. So it'll take at least three to four weeks. All right, Maureen, thank you very much. Three to four weeks, Dr. Kakar? Somehow I missed that. I I was expecting much quicker uh, response by the immune system after the shot. So I have to keep that in mind. Um, it is so nice to have you on the program and uh, and really appreciate uh, your answering questions from people across the country and of all ages. We have one minute left, and I wonder if any last words from you, Dr. Kakar. I think it's just it's time to just remember that viral season is here and it's happening and that it's important to assume that the cold you have could be COVID. So if you're at a population at risk or if you're seeing at risk, someone at risk, get tested. And also to remember there's treatments out there for COVID. So again, if you're at that age group, um, get yourself tested if you think it's COVID. And just, you know, viruses are going around. So protect yourselves, protect infants, protect the elderly. Um, stay away if you can when you're sick and wear a mask when you're sick. And I think if we do all those things, we'll be able to hopefully um, decrease the severity of this viral season coming up. Excellent advice. Nice to have you on the show. But because COVID is the reason you're on the show, not to, nice to have you on the yes. show, if you know what I mean. Anyway, okay. thank you so much for giving us some time on a Sunday afternoon. You're very welcome. Dr. Fatima Kakar is a infectious disease specialist at the Pediatric Hospital in Montreal, Saint-Justine, and also an associate professor at the University of Montreal. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from October 1st, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on a show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Chuck Mulgat, Mackenzie Rebello, and Tori Goodwin. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Keaton Walichka, and Sean Foss. Technical production and editing by Will Yar and Matthias Wolfson. Program assistant is Keata Greco. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenard, Steve Howard, and Kate Helmore. Digital producer is Paul Hanchek. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Check Up the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.